Hey, Damien, it's good to be with you. Well, thanks so much, Bill. I'm thrilled that you asked me. This is a, a really interesting time for us to be uh, talking. The announcement of, of TR's acquisition of Case Text just uh, came out yesterday afternoon. I saw it this morning. What, uh, what, what, what's your commentary? What do you have to say? I, I've known uh, Jake and Pablo for many years now, and I'm thrilled for their success. I think that they have been um, really uh, scraping at this for more than 10 years, and they really deserve all the success that they're now getting. Uh, they've, they've been successful for a long time, but of course, this demonstrates how successful they've been to be acquired by Thompson Reuters. So I would say, first of all, thrilled for Jake and Pablo and team. Um, <clears throat> they have been thinking differently about how legal research uh, can be done and thinking differently about how legal tech can be done. Um, in a way that I, I think is unique to them. Uh, and I'm really happy that they are uh, seeing that recognized in the form of uh, a high dollar value uh, that they saw right there. So most of all, happy for them as humans. Um, also happy to see that the technology that they're building is being validated by the market as being something valuable uh, and that is uh, is really worth investing in. Um, so both of those things I think are really, really good developments. Yeah, it's a great, uh, great exit for a startup in in this market. What, um, how how does this change the landscape? What what does this mean? I think anytime you have, uh, you know, two large incumbents, uh, you can imagine uh, who those two would be, uh, and then you have other upstarts that are trying to eat market share from the incumbents. Um, of course, uh, it is uh, when one of the upstarts gets acquired by an incumbent. Uh, that reduces the competitive playing field. Uh, and of course, so in some sense, there's a, a, a collective sigh saying, you know, I think Bob Ambrosi said, you know, I wish they could have been running a bit longer um, without uh, before this happens. But now that it has, has happened, or at least is scheduled to happen, the proposed merger, um, now we have to think about what we as an industry, um, will that be just a hole that is unfilled? Or will we collectively as an industry fill that hole with other um, other tools, other companies, other um, options uh, that now uh, is the hole that Case Text has left? Of course, there might be a world where all of Case Text customers stay with Case Text and, and uh, continue with uh, their new parent company and uh, continue going there. Um, that is one world. Uh, another world is where maybe people are looking for an alternative. Uh, you know, uh, if uh, if case text does not continue to uh, innovate, like they've innovated in the last few years, you can imagine that customers might be looking to alternatives. So uh, I would say that that's uh, that is another world uh, that we're also looking at. Yeah, so we're we're both uh, Thompson alums. Uh, when you combine this acquisition with the the sale of of Elite and Prolot to TPG, you can see sort of a larger strategy here. That's right, uh, and that's. Uh, that is an interesting strategy. If you think about um, what the Thomson Reuters uh, before I joined it, I think maybe even before you joined, like circa 2008, 2009, uh, they had the full stack. Uh, they had uh, they had the research, uh, obviously with Westlaw. Um, they also uh, you know bought 3E and the the finance stack as well. And so you could essentially take front of house uh, all the research and lawyerly things to the back of house, all the billing and everything, all the finance. The, so you have substantive law and business of law. And you have them all under one company. Um, but now, of course, that business of law, you know, they seem to be divesting that. They don't seem to be as interested with 3E, and et cetera. And now they've acquired the substance of law. 
uh, startup that is case text. Uh, so that is an interesting development to be able to say that um, they used to have the full stack, uh, but now they're divesting the business of law, now focusing more on the substance of law. Interesting, certainly. Yeah, and they're obviously getting back to the the focus of of what you know what what made uh, West originally, and and I you know I really bought into that vision of of combining the full stack. It never got fully realized, unfortunately, um, as being part of trying to uh, to make that happen. Um, but given where they're at today, you can you can also understand why they would go back to the the focus. That's right. Uh, and there is a lot of, you know, with large language models, uh, there is a bit of, not a bit of, a lot of low-hanging fruit on the substantive side, uh, which is uh, why you can imagine doubling down on the substantive side to be able to say, you know, what can we do with this new tool that we have that is a large language model? Um, how can we be able to do things better, faster, stronger, substantively? Um, so yeah, you can imagine this being a, you know, a focus now on on the going back to basics, if you will, of, uh, you know, what what makes our company strong, uh, research makes our company strong, uh, therefore let's double down on research and less on the business side. Do, do you think this deal happens with without the generative AI component? Well, it didn't happen before the generative AI component, <laughs> right? So there's a, it's hard to build a counterfactual for that. Um, but I, I would say that uh, I, I think, you know, Case text has done many things well in its history. Um, and I would say that one thing that it did well is to be able to push neural nets uh, before anyone pushed neural nets. Uh, so they were they were doing things with BARD, or I'm sorry, not with BARD, with BERT, B-E-R-T, the Google's large language model. Uh, that was essentially the attention is all you need model uh, to be able to say, this is a transformer for transformers who are cool. Uh, case text was building their BERT-based model. Uh, I think they... I, I want to say that they called it Daubert. Uh, that is the legally based BERT. It was uh, Daubert or you know, legal BERT, maybe. Um, but essentially, they were doing this work in 2017, 2018. So um, I would say that uh, you know, if this current acquisition is a result of large language models, it's because Case Text has been pushing that for so many years. And um, you know, of course, when BERT, they spent all that money on BERT, and of course, uh, when GPT three and four came around, then of course, all that BERT work goes away and all of a sudden you just have this new model uh, that you have to but they they pivoted and they uh, you know jumped on on board with open ai and they were able to get open early access um so all that's to say is that they were transformers before transformers were cool and uh and the fact that they um are now acquired for tr i think is a, is a result of that forward thinking and i would say that uh companies who today want to be able to push the industry forward are pushing large language models left and right pushing vector databases, pushing large language models. Uh, and that's what we at VLX are doing. We have a billion legal documents that we're running embeddings uh, throughout the entire billion uh, documents, and we are running large language models across them. So we're, uh, I, I think that any company that is not chasing a large language model route uh, is doing something wrong. Yeah, and so all that experience was very applicable to, uh, to OpenAI's model. I mean, there's when you work with neural networks, it's so much about the experience, sort of the lore of having done it, and understanding how to how to twist the dials to get the right results. That's right, and and uh, you know, OpenAI is a good model that um, that you know, there's there's a question as to is OpenAI building a platform or are they building a product? Um, and I was just listening to a podcast this morning talking about you can build refrigeration, uh, or you could be uh, so you could be a refrigerator company, or you could be Coca-Cola which takes advantage of the refrigerator. Uh, and so essentially uh, OpenAI is almost a refrigerator company uh, that they are, uh, they are uh, you know, uh, 
if you, whatever you want to build atop open AI's large language models, have at it, right? Uh, and then case text is essentially a Coca-Cola to be able to build on top of that. Um, and so I think to further that metaphor a bit, maybe strain the metaphor, um, in the legal sphere, um, you not only have refrigeration, but you also have Freon, uh, that is to be able to make the refrigeration happy. Um, for the legal industry, uh, our Freon is legal data, that is statutes, regulations, judicial opinions, motions, briefs, pleadings, um, merger agreements, uh, all the other types of agreements, uh, all of the other jurisdictions. So all of that, all of that legal data is Freon. Uh, that you need the refrigeration plus the Freon to be able to build the Coca-Colas of the world. So I would say that um, you know all of us today are um, essentially taking, uh, we have now refrigerator parts, but we still need the Freon to be able to flow through the refrigerator parts. Um, the open AI is the refrigerator. Uh, the Freon is still the legal data. So all that's to say is that um, every, data is the new oil and uh, or Freon, using our metaphor. And so I would say that, uh, yeah, there are two components that whoever has the refrigerator and the Freon um, is able to build cool things. Uh, and the cool things might be the Coca-Cola products or it might be the other products too. But uh, I think Freon is, and oil is the essential components to such things. Yeah, OpenAI does seem a little confused about whether they're gonna be the platform or the product. They keep uh, keep bouncing bouncing back and forth. What? How do you feel, how do you think this is gonna, the play out with open ai closed model versus versus open models uh, i was lucky enough to be at uh, legal week this past year uh, where uh, pablo was on the panel with my friend john may uh, and they were debating about this very thing uh, pablo was saying you know to train up you know GP, at that point gpt three and a half and soon to be gpt4 is you know tens of millions of dollars uh, and sometimes more than that uh, and so you need to be a huge player to be able to spend that kind of money to build these kind of large language models. So this is, you know, Legal Week was what, February? Uh, before GPT-4 came out. So he said that uh, this will be dominated by the largest titans of the space. So they're dominated by the Microsofts, by the Googles, by the Facebooks, et cetera, uh, Meta. Uh, and then John Day said, no, I think there will be a thousand open source models blooming. Uh, and he thinks that, you know, that um, they'll be a little further behind the, the big guys, uh, but uh, the big people, but um, they'll be close enough to say, you know, what is the delta between this open source model and the expensive model? And if the answer is not much, um, then people will use the open source model for next to free, which will then drive down the prices of the larger models. Uh, because how do you compete with free? Well, you make it cheaper, right? And that's, we, we've seen that with, you know, 3.5 turbo, where they just keep dropping the price and dropping the price and dropping the price because the, you know, uh, the, uh, GPT for all and uh, Dolly, D-O-L-L-Y, V2 and MPT and all of these open source versions of this are free. So how do you compete with free? And all, all those open source ones, by the way, are about 3.5-ish in quality. Uh, so, and you can, you don't have to worry about pushing your data up and down to open AI. You could just run it internally on premises uh, without pushing anything. Um, so anyway, so I, I, I used to agree with, uh, with Pablo uh, that, you know, only a few large players, but I think John name might be right and i think i think pablo even said it recently that he he is surprised and thinks that uh, that open source models are going to be you know chasing uh, but will still be pretty close and that is actually you know really good for the entire industry yeah i'm, I'm definitely on uh, john's side of this argument and, and i think it is much better for all of us if that's true and if you just think about moore's law applying to the price of, of gpus uh we're almost destined to get there at 
uh, sometime in the not too distant future. That's right. Not just GPUs. Uh, you know, but some of these open source models are running on CPUs, right? And of course, GPUs are in high demand right now, and there's supply and demand. You know, try to get your hands on some A100s, and good luck, uh, right? So, so GPUs were currently hardware constrained on that side, but if we have some of these new uh, tools that are built on CPUs, uh, and maybe those aren't, uh, you know you don't need the performance that is you don't need to, them to go so fast but you could do a backlog on cpu power just spin up some aws uh, clusters mm -hmm. uh, that could be you know things speaking of moore's law right that could be also groundbreaking that if we don't have to rely on gpus but we can do cpus yep. so let's play this out into the, the future a little bit because you're 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 living in this and thinking about it constantly where where do where do we end up with generative ai and legal what, what's the impact here I think we, um, I, you know, I, I've been a lawyer uh, for the listeners to the extent they don't know, we didn't even talk about background, but I've been a lawyer since 2002. Uh, I litigated for about 15 years with a large law firm, uh, Robbins Kaplan. I represented victims of Bernie Madoff. Uh, I best represented Best Buy in much of their commercial litigation. I sued JP Morgan over the mortgage-backed security crisis. So I have a litigation history, but I've also been a coder since 1985. And everyone who works with me will say I'm a crappy coder, which is accurate, uh, but I'm still a coder nonetheless. Uh, so uh, I, I come at uh, your question as to, you know, what are large language models, not just from a technical standpoint, but also from a substantive standpoint. What does it mean for the practice of law? And having litigated since 2002, I've seen a couple of these waves to, of AI waves to saying, you know, the productivity, the text productivity is going to eat our jobs. All right, they've been saying that for 25, 30 years, and it hasn't happened yet. Um, so there's a temptation to say, well, this is going to be just one of those. Uh, it's, it's just going to be everybody's going to shrug their shoulders in a couple of years and we'll keep on doing everything like it's, it has been in the past. That's one world. Another potential world, though, is that um, it is actually different, where never before in these waves, um, every time that these waves have happened in the past, um, they've been essentially creating picks and axes. Uh, where you, uh, you, of course, you make better picks and axes that can do things faster, but you still need a human to be able to do the things. This is the first time where you don't need the human. That is the output of the work. It you know, looks a lot like I as a human would do. So the output of a letter to opponents of counsel looks a lot like the letter I would make. Uh, output of a summary memo to the client looks a lot like that. The outlook, uh, output of a jury instruction looks a lot like my jury instruction. The output of a motion looks a lot like my motion. So anyway, this is, isn't just picks and axes uh, to have humans draft a motion faster. It's actually drafting the motion itself. So once we think about, okay, if we're not just building picks and axes, but we're actually building the, the, the thing itself, tools to make the output, maybe that's number one, that's different. Thing number two is these large language models um, have read all the things. That is, if they read the entire internet, uh, they've, you know, they've read every uh, book, uh, essentially. They've also read all of the cases. They've also read all of the websites for all the law firms that give all the advice about all the things. They've read all the contracts. So you can think of, uh, you know, and they also uh, can be output, you know, argue about the equivalent about the details, but in the bar exam, they beat 90% of humans. Um, so on the bar exam. So this is, uh, this is a, somebody who has comprehension, 90% uh, better than humans, and has read all the things and can spit out content, words, much faster than lawyers, uh, that is humans can spit out words. So all that confluence of things makes us think about um, what it means to be a lawyer, first of all, if my output looks a lot like this machine's output. Um, 
and you know maybe it's not identical today but if we if Moore's law is in it in the indication it's going to get closer to and exceed us very soon um, so that's number one what does it mean when I my content looks like the machine's content and secondly what does it mean for human creativity that is the best lawyers I've ever met um, of course argue all the statutes that apply argue all the cases that apply and they they follow the arguments but the best lawyers are not only logical in that way but they're also creative in a way they make arguments that other lawyers are like oh that's smart i wouldn't have thought of that right and what i'm finding with these large language models is actually they're providing that kind of creativity to be able to think outside of the box uh, to be able to make legal arguments that are plausible legal arguments that you can imagine a judge saying, you know, I think that makes sense. Um, it's not in the case law, but not all of, you know, for litigation, not all of the law is in the case law. People make new law all the time. So many cases are items of first impression that there is no precedent. So um, I think what large language models in my experimentation with them are demonstrating a lot of that legal creativity that is thinking outside the box and being able to uh, do things that a lawyer would look and say, wow, that's a, that's a creative argument. So anyway, so this goes to the heart of what do lawyers do for a living if my content looks like your content, and what is legal creativity if machines are actually creative in the same way we are. But but when you really dive into to how LLMs work, how the end result that you see when you work with ChatGPT, um, I I don't buy it. Like I, I absolutely see it as a huge point of leverage, definitely. And I see the ability to make attorneys vastly more productive. But the five or 10% that it gets wrong is really important. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're talking about a profession where, where precision is crucial and, and a profession that is entirely precedence-based using a technology that that frankly is really horrible at 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 least today at uh at precedence yep agreed so let's let's agree to a bunch of things that you just said uh essentially one large language models make a mistake yes uh two they are those mistakes are non-negligible five ten percent put up to 25 percent whatever that is uh agreed um Number three, I, as a lawyer, need to go and correct those mistakes, find those mistakes, and make them better, right? That's, uh, I think we can agree to those three things. Now take this example, that's example one, and go to example two and swap out large language model with first year associate. Do they make errors? Yes. Are they high uh, percentage? Five, 10, 20%? Yes. Um, do lawyers have to go in and fix those things? Yes. So. Really, I think that all of those things you just said are indicative of uh, every first, second year, third year associate that comes down the pike. And if that's true, um, how much better are first, second, third year associates getting from the 1980s to today? Uh, I would say not much better. They still make 20 to 30%, right? How much better are the large language models going to be as we fine tune them, as we have human reinforced learning to be able to do things? Uh, are we going to shrink that 25% down to 20%, down to 15%, down to 10%, down to next to zero? So I would say all of those things uh, push us toward a potential future. Again, nothing is predicting the future, right? But one of our potential worlds would be for us to be able to say, 
I, as a partner, have two or three trusted associates that I work with that I have to make correct those 25% of errors to a future where I, as a partner, have my trusty LLM associate that moves from 25% down to 0% errors uh, as we go forward. Yeah, we're, we're going to need Mark Andreessen's AI uh, tutor because otherwise, how's a, a 1L ever going to, to learn? Because you're not going to have that opportunity you've been re replaced by an LLM. And, and you're making another really good point, which is that, um, you know, we haven't seen the results of these models when you apply both really good data management that's legal specific, which, you know, we're very early in that process. And there's very, very little in terms of guard, guardrails. Like there's a ton you can do to deal with finding hallucinations and correcting them and putting a, you know, a, a, an error rate on them or a confidence rate. And, and that work just hasn't happened yet. All those things are going to happen. And, and those are things that we're talking about in the immediate future, not even you know pushing out to five or 10 years from now. Yep, uh, I agree with all of that. And you know, to the legally specific, uh, if you hear Pablo speak, uh, pretty much every time he speaks, he says the correct statement that uh, the future of LLMs is not just asking a question out of the blue, but is instead retrieval augmented generation. That is option one is to ask GPT, give me a motion uh, in front of this judge for this cause of action, and it'll spit something out that's probably hallucinating. That's option one. Option two is to say, um, don't just spit something out of the blue, but here are 12 successful motions to dismiss for breach of contract in the Southern District of New York. Hey, large language model, why don't you synthesize those and give me the arguments that are statistically most likely to win for this judge, for this jurisdiction, for this cause of action? So the number of uh, uh, you know, hallucinations in option number two are very, very small. And that's because it is a legally specific domain. We are constraining it with those particular documents. Um, how do you constrain it with those particular documents? Sally tags. Each one of those things I just mentioned is a Sally tag. Breach of contract, Southern District of New York, Judge Smith, a motion to dismiss. Um, so all of these, all of these things, uh, to have good retrieval augmented generation, you need to tag up your data to be able to then retrieve in the right way to be able to have the large language models do their work. So that's to your question, uh, point number one about legally specific tools, that you need the legal tags to be able to constrain the data set to be able to give the good output. Thing number two that you mentioned that is important is the guardrails. Um, guardrails are important uh, not just to constrain the data set, like I just mentioned right there, but guardrails are also important for as we have large language models that are agents, uh, that is, you know, baby AGI and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, auto GPT, which, um, you know, you say, uh, and, uh, you know, it goes out in the world saying, go out and fulfill this goal. Uh, and so uh, what uh, I testified along with John Nay and Daza Greenwood and Mike, uh, uh, Dan Katz and Mike Bomarito and Megan Ma, we all testified before the Wyoming legislature, where the Wyoming legislature said, uh, we as Wyoming are very um, libertarian, so we want to be very business friendly. So they did a thought experiment. What if we were to allow this large language model agent to be its own company? So an LLM LLC, what would happen if we just let it do business? Where I as a human say, here's your goal, go out and create a website, go out and put out AdWords, go out and bring in revenue, right? If you have any questions, let me know, but otherwise just go, up, go about your business. Um, Wyoming said, what, what if this were to happen? What, what would be, so we actually, got somebody who uh, worked uh, at OpenAI for a while. He worked with us to build an uh, AutoGPT agent uh, that went out and did things. And, uh, and we would ask it questions, and then uh, it would ask us questions. We give it a response, it would go out and do things. Um, so we did this uh, kind of as a thought experiment, but to show how things can go horribly wrong in this kind of scenario. 
uh, where you could imagine, you know, it kills people or breaks laws, right? There's, there's all sorts of things. So you need to have, you know, in the AI industry, they call this alignment, right? You need to have alignment with human values to ensure that this agent is not going to go out and wreak havoc. So you, you need these guardrails. Um, we've had guardrails for a couple of millennia. They're called laws. Uh, and so really um, what John is doing, and I think is the right thing to do, is to take, um, to build a foundational model of law. So much like the, the largely foundational model of GPT is built on the internet, plus Twitter, plus Reddit, plus all the ugliness of the internet, right? Um, imagine a large language model built not on those things. Uh, oh, and by the way, in that large language model, beat the bar exam and get beat about 90% of humans based on the internet writ large. What John is building is a legal large language model where all it knows is statutes and regulations and judicial opinions and motions, briefs, pleadings, all these things. So between these two, you could imagine uh, which is going to do better on the bar exam. Uh, the uh, GPT-4 got some questions on the bar exam wrong about the rule of perpetuities. Um, John's large language model is going to know about the rule of perpetuities because it's ingested all of the rules of perpetuities. So you could imagine, uh, and by the way, John Nay is making this all open source and free, putting it on GitHub. So um, you could imagine for my Wyoming example, my LLM LLC, Imagine if you told it, go out in the world and fulfill your goal, but before each action, consult the Oracle, that is the legal large language model, to make sure that you're not doing something bad. Make sure you're aligned with human values as demonstrated by this legal large language model. Um, and the beauty of that idea is that it takes all of the statutes, it takes New York statutes and California statutes and Florida statutes and Texas statutes and all the jurisdictions that are part of its training set, and it aligns them in vector space. That is to say, here are all the privacy obligations for all the jurisdictions that are part of that. And so it essentially normalizes the world's data or organizes the world's laws and regulations uh, to, in vector space. So as you think about, you know, people of, you know, Sam Altman of OpenAI, uh, the CEO of OpenAI said that uh, we need to have alignment. We need to figure out what that alignment is. Uh, but how do you make sure that somebody from Alabama is aligned with someone from California, right? Good luck with that. Um, so this largely, you know, we've had alignment problems before and they're called laws. So people in Alabama and California need to uh, need to fulfill federal laws, right? So you can imagine um, that this legal large language model could fulfill the dream of Sam Altman with not much work to be able to say, you know, these are these are the laws as reflected in the large language model. So this is a good, at least a good head start to be able to fulfill these alignments and guardrails. Yeah, and you're giving a specific example of, of how to make LLMs smarter really fast, which is connect them to other data sources, which is which is not hard to do. It's just we're early and it hasn't really happened yet. That's right. Yeah, and that's why Pinecone, uh, you know, a company called Pinecone is doing really well because they build these vector databases to connect, you know, to run the retrieval step, that retrieval augmented generation step to be able to say, run a query in vector space, come bring back the results in vector space and then be able to run those that smaller data set through the large language model. So that's, yeah, I think that's uh, pine cones and the others like it are gonna be uh, something that I'm gonna be looking at a lot. Yeah, I have, I have a feeling that that we could do this for like another couple of hours uh, because we're both very passionate about uh, about this subject. Um, I, I think it's fascinating what this is gonna mean for what uh, what you're doing and and what's gonna happen in the market uh, as a whole. So I really appreciate you uh, coming on and, and talking about it. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled that you asked me. Yeah, a few things more exciting than what we're doing right now. Uh, I, I left the practice of law in 2015 based on the moment we're in right now. And I left the practice of law in 2015 saying, I want to work for a company that has all the oil, that is, uh, has the legal data that we can then refine and be able to do things. Or using my previous example of Freon, right? Uh, we need the oil. Uh, there are only a couple of, of companies that have the oil. Thompson Reuters, Lexus, and my company, Vlex. And uh, so I'm very excited about uh, being able to show off the cool things we're building with my oil. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what uh, what you do with it. Thanks, Tammy. Thanks, Bill. Thank you.